have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and this range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Unions remain a powerful faction that drives the policy debate around the nation, and they have changed a lot over the past generation. A large part of the private sector workforce used to be covered by unions who negotiated on their members' behalf, and this has been declining for decades. Meanwhile, unionism took off in the public sector, and there are now more union members who work for governments than private employers. Now, how unions are formed and recognized is a result of political compromises and judicial decisions that began over a century ago. And those decisions, those compromises still affect what uh, union policy today. Yet all of the stakeholders seem unhappy with those compromises right now. And to talk about where union policy is and where it might be going, I'm joined by Steve DeLee, the Director of Workers for Opportunity here at the Mackinac Center, and Vinny Vernuccio, a Strategic Advisor to the Mackinac Center. Steve and Vinny, welcome. Thanks for having me, James. Hey, thanks, James. Thanks for having me. Yeah. What are the public benefits that come from union policy? Uh, I'll, I'll launch off first here, Vinny, and then I'll let you dive in. Um, it depends on what you mean and who you're asking. Uh, so from a free market perspective... Uh, a free market union policy offers advantages to everybody. It offers advantages to workers, uh, to employers, and to the unions themselves. As you've noted, uh, unionism has been in the decline. Uh, even though public sector unionism has ar- arisen uh, over time, it's still in a decline. And right now, we don't have an option where employees can voluntary, voluntarily associate, where unions are forced to compete. Uh, to provide better services, and where employers are are still flexible enough to manage their workplaces. Um, If we could make some changes there, that would really dynamically affect uh, the the workplace environment. Absolutely, Steve. I couldn't uh, couldn't agree more. Um, In fact, um, years ago, uh, when I was director of labor policy at Mackinac, uh, I actually wrote a study, uh, Unionization for the 21st Century, and it made those exact recommendations. Um, it's getting away from the one-size-fits-all um, forced unionism of the past. And, I mean, right now, uh, unionism is actually uh, forced three different ways. It's um, imposed on employers from employee, uh, um, from unions. They have to negotiate if a majority of their workers organize. It's forced on workers that may want not want to associate with the union. If they want their own contract, if they think they can negotiate a better deal than what the union did, or if they simply want different terms than what the union has, it, it, it's actually illegal if the union has exclusive representation for them to do that. The union is given a monopoly. And frankly, there is also force on unions. Um, public sector uh, across the board, thanks to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court case Janus versus AFSCME, um, all public employees have a First Amendment right to choose to pay or not pay union dues. And in right-to-work states, uh, right-to-work, of course, means that a union can't get a worker fired for not paying them. Um, both public and private sector workers 
don't have to pay a union, but that union owes them what's known as a duty of fair representation because the union has that monopoly. So the union is forced to represent, employers are forced to negotiate, workers are forced to accept union representation. And Steve, um, you know, just like you said, if it was voluntary all around, frankly, I think unions could actually expand and grow stronger. Um, but that's not what they're doing right now. They're using these monopolies and these government granted crutches that are outdated in these antiquated laws to keep the status quo. And uh, James, I'm very excited to talk about ways that unions can adopt this voluntary approach during this call. Yeah, some of the work that you've been doing is actually showing that unions are doing a lot of win-win situations already, you know, uh, uh, trying to weigh, uh, trying to be valuable for employers, for employees, trying to negotiate on their behalf, trying to find win-wins. Yet, I don't think that unions as they exist right now are very excited about your proposals for voluntary unionism. Uh, what's their view on where unions are and where should they go or where they should go? You know, you know it, it, it's shocking. Uh, James, you know, obviously the Mackinac Center was instrumental in right to work in Michigan and in multiple other states. Um, and it, it, every time right to work comes up, uh, unions start um, uh, complaining that, oh, if you pass this, we're going to have to represent workers not paying us. Uh, another study I did uh, for the Mackinac Center centered around a concept called workers' choice. And workers' choice essentially takes the unions at their word and says, you don't want to represent people not paying you. You don't have to. Let them out. Let them act like the over 87% of the rest of the workers in the economy that are non-unionized and represent themselves. Um, and of course, this needs to be done at a federal level in Congress for private sector workers, but states can actually do it for their public employees at a state level. But every time that argument comes up, it's, whoa, 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 whoa wait up, wait up, wait up, and we didn't really mean that we don't want to represent people not paying us. We just want to force everyone to pay us. So th there's a little bit of crocodile tears there. But I, I think unions eventually will come around and will say that, okay, you know, voluntary unionism is the way of the future. Um, and hopefully they'll start to adopt some of these ideas. Yeah, Steve, I don't think that's what they're saying right now, though. What are they? What are the proposals that they have for what unionism should look like in the 21st century? Yeah, well, the part of the problem is that their vision of unionism for the 21st century comes from the 1930s. Um, and so it's still based on that old coercive model. It's still based on keeping his control of as many employees as possible. And the way that they're pushing that right now is through something that Vinny and I have written on endlessly, um, it seems like, which is the Protecting the Right to Organize Act. You may have heard about that. Um, it's some aspects of it are part of the uh, infrastructure packages that are being discussed right now. And basically, that it would be the single-handedly the greatest change in labor law since probably the Taft-Hartley Act. Um, it would eliminate... Uh, the Taft-Hartley Act is what for our listeners? Uh, Taft-Hartley Act was an act, I think, Vinny, you may have to correct me, I think it was 1947, um, which was a reaction to the National Labor Relations Act giving too much power to organized labor. Uh, it enabled right-to-work laws and some additional protections for employees is basic overview. Vinny, anything to add on Taft-Hartley? Uh, no, that's exactly right. Taft Hartley, um, and you're right. It was 1947. It was um, also uh, the year that gave us uh, national that gave us right to work. 
Um, so before before that, it was kind of questionable while well, states could enact right-to-work laws. Um, but thanks to Taft-Hartley amending federal labor law, now we do have the explicit ability at a state level to uh, grant workers the freedom to choose whether or not to pay a union. And, and Steve, just one thing I wanted to go back to you. What You hit the nail on the head as far as um, I, I think you said uh, that the 21st century unionism looks uh, you know, a lot like last century. And um, there's actually a, a great quote by Jack Lessenberry on Michigan Public Radio. So not exactly a bastion of conservatism. But uh, here was his quote on where unions are today and where they're going. He said, a lot of union leadership seems to have figured out what to do in 1936. And if 1936 ever comes back, they're ready. But it's not coming back, and they have to come up with a new model. And Steve, both you and uh, Jack, I think, are you know exactly right that unions do need to embrace this this new, a different model. And you know, I would say that, and I know Steve would probably agree that it should center around more voluntary unionism. Definitely, and and unfortunately, that's not what we're seeing. If anything, it's a double down. Um, so, I mean, the PRO Act, which is, which is essential, which is that double down, it eliminates right to work in all 27 states that have it currently. Um, it eliminates secret ballot elections, which we can get into in a minute to explain how unions are formed if you want. Um, it makes franchisors and franchisees joint employers, uh, which makes any kind of franchise corporation um, sig- subject to significantly more liability for things they have little to no control over. Uh, it also has the added advantage for unions that it makes it far more easier uh, to organize their workforces. Um, and it basically eliminates independent contracting in the gig economy. So if you've been following any of the stuff in California with AB5, uh, with Uber and Lyft and DoorDash threatening to pull out, with independent truckers threatening to leave, with independent journalists actually having left, um, that's also part of the PRO Act. And this is something Biden campaigned on. He's clearly in favor of. Um, Wait, and that it eliminates that or it just forces them to join a union or, or what? Well, it basically reclassifies them all as employees. Um, it's There is a small window where you could still be an independent contractor like those companies' uh, workers are. But for practical purposes, it would be very difficult to achieve that classification. Once all of these workers are classified as employees by the Department of Labor, that means that uh, unions can come in and organize them. And that's the real goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it would make it essential. It would make it nearly impossible for um, many entrepreneurs to consider themselves uh, working for themselves or or being their own boss. And I mean, the playbook is exactly the same. As California, it's the same test, and it just wreaked devastation out there. So much so that even the bill sponsor in California uh, said that it went too far, and she actually proposed and got several exemptions to AB5, uh, which was the California law that instituted the same test. And then voters actually went to the polls and said, no, 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 this this is still too far, and even they ratcheted it back. But now here's the problem with the PRO Act, as exactly as Steve said, none of those exemptions are in the PRO Act. It still will wreak that same devastation that California saw um, right after uh, AB5 was uh, was passed. And uh, just kind of piggybacking off Steve for a second, 
the idea of the PRO Act is doubling down on unionization of the past. It's trying to stifle innovation. It's trying to stifle people that work for themselves. It's trying to make business owners who may be earning $200,000 a year into managers that'll be making $50,000 a year because now a distant corporation is going to be liable for their employees. So they say, we're not going to take that risk. And now you're a manager. You're no longer owning your own business. And that's what Steve was talking about on the, on the attacks on the franchising industry. Um, essentially, they want everyone in this kind of neat little box that makes it easier for them to organize. And um, you know, it doesn't matter what other damage that this bill does. That's the goal of it. And that's the stated goal of the Biden administration and those that are backing this um, very, very harmful piece of legislation. Okay, so on one end of things, you've got incumbent unions. They're unhappy with the current policy. They want this pro act. They want to. Uh, 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 they want to make it easier for them to unionize people. Uh, sometimes, in cases, even against their will. And you've got, um, on the other hand, you've got reformers like yourselves who want to make unionism more voluntary, more mutually beneficial. Uh, so what does the Overton window look like on this issue? What are the bounds uh, on, on both ends? I mean, clearly the PRO Act seems to be within the bounds because they're talking about in Congress. Um, I mean, it's not just in the bounds. I mean, actually, the PRO Act is codifying in federal or attempting to codify in federal legislation what the Biden, what the Obama administration did regulatorily and what the Biden administration will probably start doing regulatorily again now that they have control of the Department of Labor and um, are about to take control of the National Labor Relations Board, uh, the NLRB, which is you know, the federal National Labor Board. Um, so I, I'd say that is close to the end of one end of the spectrum. Um, the far, far out end of the spectrum as we're starting to see is this idea called, unfortunately, sectoral bargaining. So allowing unions to organize entire industries um, to create wage and benefit boards um, where they're not even organizing company to company. They're simply working with the government and saying that, okay, you know, we have um, a critical mass and critical mass is sometimes 10% or so, as we've seen in Europe. Uh, we're just going to negotiate for this entire industry, all workers of this entire region. So I think that's one end of the spectrum. And then the other end of the spectrum is, um, you know, I wouldn't even say it's what Steve and I are talking about. Um, you know, uh, Joe, uh, Joe Overton actually had a great graph. Uh, he called it the, uh, the, the spectrum of uh, union intervention. Um, and on one end, it was actually outlawing unions. And I think that's, you know, the one end of the Overton window. And that's what no one's asking for now. We're, you know, basically halfway between that and right to work and saying, no, 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 it should all be voluntary. And then the other end was this forced unionism where everybody has to be in a union. And frankly, I think that sectoral bargaining is getting very close to that at this point. Yeah, I think the real issue here um, is that there hasn't been much public interest in moving towards a more voluntary model. Um, that's my sense. Not that there isn't any, it's just that it's not as loud as the union voices. And I think part of that is because people don't realize the coercion involved here, um, not only on having to join the union, but having to subsidize political speech, um, preventing people from talking to their boss and negotiating on their own behalf, 
uh, protecting bad employees, genuinely bad employees from discipline or the consequences of, of poor performance. Um, you know, when I, I don't think anybody who's reasonable would object to something as simple as, hey, before you join a union, you should know all of your rights, both, you know, to join or to not join. You should understand what, you know, exclusive representation means, and you should have the choice whether or not to join. Um, that would seem like a pretty reasonable position, I think, to most people, but we get pushed back on that, even when that's in the window, in my opinion. I mean, shouldn't voluntary association be within the window? I think it is for your average person, um, and I think it is for most legislatures. Um, obviously, the unions still don't like it, and so they push back against it, um, but I, I struggle to find anyone I've talked to who says, no, we don't want that, who isn't associated with the unions. Well, that, so that's kind of an interesting issue then. Uh, is there a federal policy just completely dominated by the people who are directly affected, uh, uh, union, uh, uh, unions and possibly employers, rather than really reflecting the public will on this issue? I think it is. And I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why you really haven't seen much movement in, you know, almost three quarters of a century now, uh, as far as what, you know, any sort of major change within labor law. And that's, you know, another reason why it is so uh, stagnant. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I think we just have to back up for a second and talk about is the difference between private sector and public sector. Um, when we're talking about the PRO Act and, pri and federal legislation, almost all of that is for the private sector, and private sector um, is mostly dealt by laws that are made by Congress, um, except for right to work, because Congress specifically gave the states the ability to give workers the freedom to choose. Um, but when we're talking about public sector unions, which I would argue are you know, far different than the private sector, um, now we're talking about state-level legislation. And, you know, there's, very, and as Steve said, I mean, there's very, very common sense approaches that I, I wouldn't even say are, you know, in the window. I'd say they're very close to the center of the window where most people will just go, yeah, that makes sense. And to reiterate what Steve said, um, having public employees informed of their rights. I mean, there's a recent Supreme Court case we've talked about, Janice versus Asme, that said public employees have a First Amendment right to choose whether to pay, essentially right to work. Informing those, uh, informing those public employees of their rights, making sure that um, employers get consent directly from the employee before taking money from their paychecks. I know shocking that you know you should have somebody that's going to take money out of your paycheck, have a written consent from you, and then you know actually say, "Hey, did did this come from you? Did you mean it?" Um, you know type of multi-factor authentication is the term of art, but the easiest way to think of it is, you know, when you sign up for an email list, they say, hey, did you really mean to do this? Click yes. That's, you know, one of the things that I know Steve was uh, referring to. And then giving them a periodic, essentially open enrollment period to say, yeah, I want to keep paying union dues. I mean, all of that, I, you know, I, I wouldn't even say that's, you know, close to any of the extreme. Um, that's just, you know, common sense, good bookkeeping and protecting public employees. And that's, you know, pretty much squarely in the middle of the mainstream idea on uh, unionism. Yeah, I mean, the fact that we're talking about this and it all pretty seems seems to make sense, you know, compare that to Vinny's example of what the far side of of, of 
this policy policy realm would be on the window, you know, no one has, as far as I'm aware, I've not found anybody openly calling for the outlawing of collective bargaining in the political sphere. Um, uh, I believe I've heard uh, uh, heard you've been accused of that. <laughs> um. I've been accused of many things, but I, I have not called for that. I'm not aware of any politicians who have called for that. Um, and when you compare something like that to this policy that Vinny just explained, you can kind of get the concept of the window. What is possible versus, you know, what is, you know, what people would support, I guess, is the way to put it. Mm-hmm. Why are unions such a force in state and local governments? I mean, even on non-union issues. Uh, I mean, it, it, a lot of it comes down to funding. Um, I mean, it, it also comes down to, you know, you know, they are electing who's on the other side of their negotiating table. And that, I mean, that is the main difference between public sector unions and private sector unions. In private sector unions, you have a profit motive. You have a company that wants to stay in business, a company that wants to survive. So they have, and they know that, you know, if they don't do good business decisions, not only are they going out of business, but their employees are going to be out of work. Um, so they have that motivation to make sure that they're making good, sound financial business choices. The public sector, on the other hand, um, you have unions that have massive political war chests that are able to elect politicians who get elected and then are able to give favors to unions. And the politicians know that they can kick the can down the road with things like unsustainable pension benefits. Um but they don't have that profit modem because they can just raise taxes or, you know, people can't say, well, this state is going out of business and we won't pick on Illinois here and what's happening out there. But for the most part, uh, you have this vicious circle where there is not the same type of direct accountability as you see with the private sector and the public sector. And you have unions electing these politicians, the politicians then in uh, in a position to give favors and benefits and more power and more money to the union, we're then able to turn around and give more money for re-election to those politicians and a cycle goes on and on and on. Everybody is happy except for you and me, the taxpayer, who at the end of the day are stuck footing the bill. A classic concentrated benefits diffuse cost problem. Exactly. Yep. And I'll, I'll add one thing to that, and that's they also have a broad network that they can activate very quickly on issues because they are organized labor. They have contacts and they understand how to get membership out. So, you know, take a school board race, for example, you can get a lot of people energized about a school board race. Um, It doesn't cost very much money to run that campaign compared to something like a congressional campaign. And then you're negotiating against the school board for wages and benefits. Well, that's a vicious cycle that, kind of continues on and on and on. And that's why we see so many local governments uh, in financial underwater. Mm-hmm. So you've got, um, you've got an interesting thing because you recognize, uh, you recognize that your opponents or, or legacy incumbent unions are powerful. They have a lot of advantages in the conventional uh, parts of policy, especially in, in areas that affect them. Uh, and while you think that your policies, your recommendations are very reasonable, um, they don't necessarily are dri- or they're not driving the, pol- uh, the policy debate right now. What what do you need to do to get your views more broadly accepted and enacted into policy? 
Well, I would actually, James, disagree with you. I mean, I think that it, it, it is very much accepted. It's just, uh, you know, things in politics take a long time. But, you know, we're, we're already seeing a ton of success. Um, you know, as we were talking about before, there's Janus rights, those, those ability for workers to make sure that their paychecks are protected and good bookkeeping. That just passed in Indiana. I mean, unions are suing right now, but, um, you know, it was enacted. Um, it was enacted through one through the Oklahoma Senate this year. It was enacted through the Florida House last year. Um, several other states have introduced it. So I think at least on the state level, and a lot of it is due to the leadership of the Mackinac Center and Workers for Opportunity, um, it, it is actually starting to enact change. And, you know, it's a multi-year process, um, but there is this clamor. And of course, it's not the Mackinac Center coming in from afar. It's local officials saying, hey, this is what has to be done. There was this Supreme Court case, or I saw this legislation over here, or I heard about this through my network. Can you come and help us? And, you know, that's one of the ways that Mackinac Center really excels um, is coming in when those lawmakers or think tanks or policy folks on the ground say, hey, um, how do we do this? And that's where we're able, you know, Steve um, and the other and the other people in the great team over there are able to uh, to assist. And we are seeing real change. I would agree with that. I think we are seeing change. Um, Obviously, there's some political realities at the federal level um, that, you know, these changes may not be enacted soon, but that's also part of the window process. I think another thing that's good, that's key and that we do very well is education. Um, you know, the concept of the window is what's politically, you know, what people will support changes over time. Um, and I think the more people understand the background of, of how traditional unionism operates and if you present them with the voluntary model that you mentioned earlier that Vinny had written a, a study on, um, 20, unionization for the 21st century, I think a worker reading that would find the, the suggestions in that very interesting. And I think the more people learn that there's an alternative, the more invested they'll be in, in a potential more pro-voluntary change. Mm-hmm. One of the things that our policies are set around right now, uh, one of the virtues of the system that we have is that it is supposed to be about voluntary unionization. You're not supposed to be able to support the union if you don't want to, and you're not even supposed to have a union unless the workers want it. Um, but those rules can get kind of strange um, uh, because like how many people in the United States right now who are part of a union have actually voted to be part of a union? <laughs> it's, it's minuscule. Um, and this is, you know, something else that I know Workers for Opportunity is working with lawmakers across the country on, uh, which is a concept called worker voting rights or union recertification. And, you know, years ago, James, you probably remember this. I think you actually helped with this study. Um, we analyzed the top 10 school districts in Michigan and, you know, tried to determine when they organized and how many teachers were there when the union actually organized them. And considering that most of these were organized in you know, the 1960s or maybe the 1970s, you, know, you were talking about less than 1% in most of these school districts. And some, statistically speaking, you were talking about zero. Um, so, James, I mean, you remember this. It's kind of like, well, we, you know, we, we can't, I don't want to come out and just say not a single teacher was there when the union organized. we got to get up with something better. So then we say, well, hey, how many were even alive when this union organized? 
And, and, and that was, you know, less than a third were even born, statistically speaking, when the union organized. So you're not even talking about your parents' union, you're talking about your grandparents' union. And that, and then, and that is a problem. And, you know, that is one of the things, at least for the public sector, that, you know, Mackinac has been great on, Brookwich for Opportunity has been great on, is um, working on legislation like we've seen in Wisconsin, like we've seen in Iowa, like they have partially in Florida and, and um, are looking at it in several other states to say that you know, union democracy is important and union members deserve the right to say, yeah, this union's doing a good job, let's reelect them, or no, they're not, let's go with no union or let's go with a different union. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's say that you've, uh, get, uh, you've gotten every policy that you've wanted, uh, 21st century unionization policies have been enacted, we're doing voluntary unionism now. How, uh, please speculate on how many people you think will be participating with unions. Uh, I'll, I'll take a stab. Um, I think what you would see initially when it first happens, a pretty significant drop off um, initially. Reason being the union hasn't developed these policies very well yet. People don't understand um, what they can do. But the whole point of the idea is that unions are now forced to compete against the option to not be in a union. They're forced to compete against other unions, and they would have to provide services to their members that make sense, whether that be uh, insurance or act as a professional organization or um, something like that. And as they do that and as they compete against each other and just the default of not being unionized, they're going to have to get better to get members to sign up and pay them. And as they do that, they will provide more and more benefits. And then I think you may see an increase in membership, but it will take some time for the market to kind of develop that competitiveness and for workers to say, okay, now you're providing enough benefits for me to pay you hundreds of dollars a year. I completely agree with Steve. Um, I I think in the long term, you're actually going to see better unions, stronger unions, unions with more membership. Um, it's going to take a radical new way of thinking for them. Uh, the competition is going to be good. It's going to make them stronger. It's going to have the unions that care more about politics than serving their membership probably start to go by the wayside. Um, but those that are doing things that unions essentially were originally intended to do in this country, such as representation, such as training, such as protecting their members, those unions are going to thrive and they're going to expand. And, you know, we've seen that with right to work where you see bad unions start atrophying, but good unions do start to um, to grow. Um, but what you're going to probably see um, if you have a more voluntary type of unionism is unions becoming more like professional service organizations, um, doing things like becoming trainers, and I can give examples of this um, later on, uh, professional organizations being better representatives, providing things like Steve said, like insurance, probably getting away from the politics and doing the things that frankly 40% of their members disagree with, um, and that's their way to grow and to become stronger. And if they do embrace this voluntary model where it's not one size fits all and they're not forcing that representation on people, I think that's their way to expand. And frankly, I think that's their future. Steve and Vinny, thank you for helping us understand the bounds of the Overton window. Thanks for having us, James. Thanks for having us, James. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast by the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Learn more about The Overton Window at www.theovertonwindow.com.